Every one of you in Jesus' name this morning, welcome to the service. First of all, I would like to thank the church for the recent offering. Your support is appreciated, and we feel unworthy of that. Thank you for that. May God bless you for sharing in that way recently. Last Sunday, we had the opportunity to visit Naaman's last weekend. Yes, Rose and Michelle and I, Maria and I, um, went out Thursday night and spent Friday, Saturday, and part of Sunday with Naaman's. Enjoyed our time there very much, connecting with them, observing what they're doing. Naaman is in his element. He's enjoying um, just all kinds of maintenance projects, and from one day to the next, doesn't quite know what he's going to get into, and uh, then is available to help Mary. And Mary, I would say, is probably the one that has the heavy load, um, cooking five meals a day, a week, I mean, five meals a week for 25 to 30 people. And then um, also making extra enough that these can take it home and have it for their lunch the next day. <clears throat> so uh, they, they are enjoying themselves there, and um, they're busy, have plenty to do. Sunday afternoon, then we went up to um, an hour and a half north of where Naaman's are and uh, attended Anissa's wedding. So we had a good weekend. And continue to pray for Naaman's as they adjust. I would say they're probably still in their honeymoon stage. And um, so continue to pray for them as they adjust to the work there. And reach out to them, contact them, visit them if you have a chance. You'll you'll enjoy it. The Bible starts out in Genesis 1-1 with a few simple words. In the beginning, God. A few simple words and yet profound meaning, profound I'm not sure what word to use exactly. A profound foundation probably is is the right word to use. A profound foundation for the rest of scripture, for the rest of creation, for the rest of mankind um, from then until now. In the beginning, God. And much as the liberal agenda around us doesn't like to believe it, there are absolutes. We live in a world of absolutes. There are defining factors We came here this morning, all of us, from our homes, wherever we spent the night last night, and got here to church. We started at point A, we ended at point B, and there was a way to go, and we knew it, and it would get us there. There's a beginning and the ending when we go somewhere. There's certain lines that we follow and certain lines that we don't cross. We stay on the road. We stay out of other people's property. At school, tests are graded and scores are kept. One plus one equals two. It always will. It always has and always will. And there's absolutes. There's defining factors that we go by. When we flew to Colorado last week, the the pilot took that plane and he got it airborne And we headed west, and he knew that there was a point A and a point B, and that's what he was aiming for, point B. He wasn't aimlessly flying around the skies, as far as I know, anyhow, um, just looking for a place that looks like the place to land. He knew where he was going to land. In fact, we found out on the way home, and we had a layover, changed flights in Nashville, and we find out what happens when 
the defining factors are lost. All systems were down. Thank you, Southwest Airlines. And flights were grounded. We got off the plane, we went to the gate. It was not the right gate. It was the gate the sign said, but they said, well, we'll tell you, we don't know. Defining factors were lost and there was a bit of chaos. Fortunately and thankfully, it wasn't as bad for us as it was for many travelers over the recent Christmas holiday. <clears throat> but we live in a world, there's defining factors and things we go by. Farmers know when the crops need to go in and you know when they need to be harvested and you know the defining factors, what it takes to have a good crop, what might happen, it causes a bad crop. You can't change those defining factors, you can only work with it and that's how it is for all of us. We live in a world of absolutes. And way back in Genesis, we see what happens when some of those absolutes are tested or challenged. God said in Genesis 26, chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, let us make man after our image, after our likeness. He didn't say that about anything else in creation. Mankind was the first thing that he, and the only thing that he said that about. He created man in the likeness of God. And that likeness, what is that likeness like? How is mankind different from other animals, other parts of creation? Man is a creature of choice. And you might argue that, well, the animals have choices as well, and they do. But man has moral choices. We, we're, we're given the opportunity to make choices between right and wrong. Man can commune with God. Man's spirit at creation was in tune with God. Man is intelligent. Man is not a hapless creature that is given to uncontrollable instincts, but we're, we're intelligent beings. We can choose. We can discipline ourselves or choose to not discipline ourselves and suffer the consequences. Man has a living soul. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7 says, God breathed into Adam the breath of life, and man became a living soul. That's not said of anything else that God created. These, thing, these are things that are definite. They're sure. <clears throat> much as we'd like to, much as some people around us may like to, want to, wish to uh, argue with that, it is a fact. Man has a living soul. And man was given the responsibility to take care of the earth. We see that in Genesis chapter 1, verses 28 and 29, chapter 2, verses 5 and 15. And then from Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, we get the sense that God walked with them daily, and maybe even specifically toward the end of the day. This was Adam and Eve created in the Garden of Eden in the perfect setting there, and having full and complete communion with God, walking with him daily. <clears throat> Have you ever wondered what that was like? Then one day, the voice of the Lord, the Bible tells us, came walking in the cool of the day, but Adam and Eve weren't ready to see him. They hid. They had sinned. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. They had sinned. They had crossed the line. They had crossed God's, one of God's absolutes. God said, you can eat from every tree, but this one you can't. And they did. And they were suffering the consequences. They felt guilt and condemnation that they had never felt before. And this, this time when God came walking in the cool of the, day, cool of the day, he found them hiding among the trees of the garden. 
They were not ready for God. They were not ready to worship with him. They didn't want to commune with him. The image and likeness of God was marred by guilt. And ever after, there needed to be a go-between. There needed to be something to bridge that gap between God and men. The first time that blood was shed was when God apparently from scripture took an animal and killed it how that all was we don't know the details but we know that God took the skins of an animal and made clothing for them blood was shed to cover for the sinfulness of man mankind had broken in absolute had broken had crossed the line had sinned against God had disobeyed him and blood needed to be shed to cover for the sinfulness of man and that's a theme that is Throughout the rest of scripture, blood needs to be shed to cover for the sinfulness of men. How many times today do we find ourselves hiding among the trees because we sinned? Instead of worshiping God, we hide from him. In this one, I want to say one simple sin, in this one sin that was committed in the Garden of Eden, Thus began the constant struggle between man's sinfulness and God's holiness that has followed mankind down through the ages right to us today. And can't each of us agree with that? We struggle. There's this tension between the sinfulness and our tendency to sin and between God's holiness. Man, in his innermost being, longing for fellowship with God. God longing for fellowship with men. God wanting his likeness to be displayed to the world. Man marring that image and giving a clouded reflection. Man realizing his insufficiency and throughout the Old Testament dispensation, sacrificing hundreds, thousands, and who knows, maybe even millions of animals to atone for his sin, to cover for his sin. Just reading through the Old Testament in my devotions again the last while, and it's mind-boggling. It's almost overwhelming the amount of rituals and sacrifices and laws and and to do those things in the right way and in the right order. It's almost overwhelming even just to read it. But for many, many years, that's what God had commanded his people to do and that's what they followed because they had lost their way, because they had lost fellowship with God. In Noah's time, it seemed like sin and Satan were taking over the earth. And it almost seems like the desperate struggle between man's sinfulness and God's holiness was losing the battle to man's sinfulness. Genesis chapter 6, verse 6 says, And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And we know the story. God sent a flood to destroy the whole earth. Noah and his his wife, their Three sons and their wives were the only people who survived the flood, who were saved. And Genesis 9, verses 1 through 7, if you would read it, sounds almost the same as what God had said to Adam. But one thing was different. I'll just read these verses. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth. Hadn't God said that to Adam? And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air, 
upon all that moveth upon the earth and upon all the fishes of the sea into your hand are they delivered. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things. But flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, ye shall not eat. That was one thing that God didn't say in Genesis chapter 1 or in Genesis chapter 2. But now he's saying it. But flesh with the life thereof, which, which is the blood thereof, ye shall not eat. And surely your blood of your lives will I require. At the hand of every beast will I require it. At the hand of a man, at the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. And you, be ye fruitful and multiply. multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. The command here is given not to eat blood because blood is life. Life is in the blood. And then just one chapter between the flood and the Tower of Babel and it seems that the, the struggle between man's sinfulness and God's holiness continues. God separated the people there at Babel by giving them many different languages. Pride was taking over in their lives. And then, and then in Genesis chapter 12, and I'll read verses 1 through 4, we have the story of Abram. Abram comes on the scene here. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed out of Haran. For some reason, God chooses a man, one man, and calls him out and promises to make of him a great nation, promises to make his name great, promises to bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him, promises to give him a posterity that's so many of so many that he can't be numbered. Through Abraham, through Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Abram was 75 years old when God told him this. He was 100 years old when Isaac was born. And we know that story well. We've been told that story from little up. One thing we see in this is that the Bible shows us that God keeps his promises. God kept his promises to Abraham. And by the time we catch up with the children of Israel in the wilderness between Egypt and the promised land, a lot of the stories that we grew up hearing and tell today have had occurred. Abram, Abraham was willing to offer Isaac. There was the story of Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Esau, Joseph in the coat of many colors, Joseph sold into slavery by his brothers, Joseph in Potiphar's house, Joseph in prison, Joseph as a governor under Pharaoh. All those stories are taking place. The children of Israel are in Egypt, and then we have them coming to the time that we just studied not long ago in our Sunday school lesson, the ten plagues and their deliverance, their miraculous escape from Egypt, crossing the Red Sea on dry ground. Just before they left Egypt, that last night they were in Egypt, God instituted the Passover supper. And that's 
one thing that I think probably, well, for myself, I don't, I, I don't quite grasp the, the um, importance or the significance of that. To the children of Israel, the Passover was a very, very significant event, and the celebration of the Passover from then on was a very significant event as well. The Passover was instituted, and the children of Israel made their miraculous escape from Egypt, crossing the Red Sea on dry ground. And then we see God's provision for them in the wilderness, manna, quail, water. Their shoes didn't wear out. Their clothes didn't wear out. God provided for them, even in in spite of their sinfulness in various times. Uh, When they fell and God's anger waxed hot against them, the Bible tells us, yet God provided for them all the way through to the promised land. Woven throughout these stories, we continue to see the struggle between man's sinfulness and God's holiness. And then in Exodus 19, another monumental occasion, God meets the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. This happened 50 days after they left Egypt. At Mount Sinai, the law is given. Plans for the tabernacle are given. And God begins to meet his people at the mercy seat. His presence in the Holy of Holies is manifested by a cloud during the day or a pillar of fire at night. At times when issues arose, the Bible tells us that the glory of the Lord appeared. It was there, centered around that that tabernacle, was their, their focus of worship and was where they heard from God. Codes of worship were established. And from here on, the children of Israel carried the tabernacle with them wherever they journeyed. And I've pondered that again as I was reading through some of the Old Testament stories, the marvel of moving a million people. And just recently I read that they moved and they stayed there for three days and then they moved again. Can you imagine the logistics behind getting this group of people to move? And with that, the the specific rules and laws that they had uh, to take down the tabernacle and to move it to where they set up again, and then to set it up again. They carried the tabernacle with them wherever they journeyed, through the 40-plus years of their journey in the wilderness, through the battles as they conquered the promised land, through the times of battle with neighboring countries. And then finally, they found a resting place in Jerusalem during Solomon's reign. Even then, not many years go by, and the kingdom of Israel is rent in two. And the struggle between man's sinfulness and God's holiness continues. Then there's the time of the kings of Israel and Judah. And you can tell I'm condensing this. I'm really condensing this and moving through the Old Testament fairly rapidly. During this time, we have the prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah warning the people of the consequences of their disobedience, predicting a pending captivity, predicting the destruction of Jerusalem and even the temple, prophesying of a time of a coming Messiah and a time when the people that walked in darkness will see a great light. Jeremiah prophesied in chapter 31, 31 through 34, familiar verses to us, of a day when a new covenant would be given. The old covenant was written on tables of stone. The new covenant would be enshrined upon the human hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
On Sinai, the law was given to reveal God's truth, instruct God's people, and convict of sin. At Pentecost, many years later, the Spirit would be given to reveal God's truth, to instruct God's people, and to convict of sin. However, it goes a step further and empowers God's people to live in communion with God by changing their hearts. Jeremiah prophesied of that. And in the meantime, the struggle between man's sinfulness and God's holiness continues. Ezekiel prophesies of a time when the glory of the Lord would leave Jerusalem, a sad day. Because of the disobedience of God's people, this did come to pass. And that was followed by 400 years of silence, no direct word from God. Had God given up? Was God to be the loser? No, 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 never. One night, somewhere in the hillsides of Bethlehem, a group of shepherds was out taking care of their sheep, and suddenly a bright and dazzling light blinded their eyes. And the angels heralded, as the angels heralded the news of their Savior, the birth, they said this, they, a Savior, which is Jesus Christ the Lord. The significance of the fact that a Savior had come, this one that was prophesied of many years prior to this. The Bible tells us that as a lad, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. And I think that phrase is significant. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man, something that mankind has wanted to do all our lives. But we struggle. We just can't quite do it, at least not on our own. But Jesus did. He grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. And for some 33 years, he walked the dusty roads of Judah, healing the sick, restoring sight to the blind, raising some from the dead, feeding thousands with just a few loaves and fishes. He calmed the elements. He walked on water. One day, he even ventured into Samaria. All the while, he taught. He debated with the religious leaders of the day, and when he talked, he spoke with authority. The people that heard him were moved by the, the, the authority that was in his words, and they were drawn to him. There was something irresistible about him. They followed him by the thousands. But there was things they had to grapple with. He ate with sinners. He visited the prostitutes. He saw right through the religious facade of the day. And in his presence, they sensed there was something deep within being filled. With him around, there was answers to life's complexities. And then on the 10th day of Nisan, Jesus rode into Jerusalem. We know that story, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Jesus had sent two of his disciples to find a donkey that had never before been ridden. And as he rode into Jerusalem, he was accompanied with great fanfare. Matthew says a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches and strawed them in the way. John identifies them as palm branches. You see, Passover was to be be kept on the 14th day. The 10th day was the day when they would choose a lamb for the Passover sacrifice. The lamb would be led through the sheep gate into the temple courts, and this involved a ceremony, a special ceremony, As the lamb entered, the people would wave palm branches and chant what was called the Halal, which is Psalms 113 through 118 and 136. 
The lamb would be taken to the temple four days before the Passover. For those four days, it would be kept under close observation to be sure that it was a lamb without spot and without blemish. Fifty tests would be performed to ensure perfection and purity. Fifty, by the way, is the number of the perfection of mercy. The lamb was then placed on the altar on the 14th day of the of Nisan, and it would be kept on the altar until three in the afternoon. Then, as a priest on the corner of the temple would watch an hourglass, at precisely the right time, the high priest would blow the shofar, and the high priest would slit the lamb's throat and declare, it is finished. All the while, they were very careful not to break a single bone so that it would stay perfect. This is the lamb that we're talking about. Jesus, on the 10th day of Nisan, rode into Jerusalem. And for the next four days, he was watched closely by the Jewish leaders. Matthew 14, 49 indicates that he was in the temple during this time, or at least often there. It's after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, things begin to happen in rapid succession. There was the Last Supper. He he celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples in the upper room. Communion was instituted there. Jesus washed his disciples' feet and commanded us to do likewise. He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and there labored in prayer. And we wonder sometimes why his disciples slept. It is told, I have a book at home, and the author writes of a time when the church she was a part of um, tried to um, do communion just like the Passover. And her observation from that was that there was so much preparation and so much time. There was some fasting, and then there was a feast, and they would eat. And, and then as it went into the night, they would get tired and sleepy. And she said that, that to them it made sense that the disciples were tired because it's part of their part of the Jewish process included um, drinking wine on four different occasions through this ceremony. So by the evening time, they were tired. And it made a lot of sense that these men were sleeping. But Jesus was laboring in prayer. We know it. And the Bible tells us he was sweating drops of blood. Judas comes with a band of soldiers to take Jesus away. All night long, Jesus is taken from one trial to another. And by the 14th day of the month Nisan, they led Jesus out to Golgotha. By nine o'clock or the third hour in the morning, they had crucified him on the cross. Can you imagine the stir that was going on in Jerusalem by now? Hundreds of thousands of people converged on Jerusalem every year at Passover. And if all the previous events weren't enough, from noon till three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land, the whole land. The Bible says that at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The Gospel of John tells us that after Jesus took the vinegar that was offered to him, he said, It is finished. And goes on to mention specifically that they didn't break his legs to speed up his death. 
And this was to fulfill the prophecy that none of his bones would be broken. Immediately following this statement, Matthew records that the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to bottom. And you've heard me talk about this before, and I think I will be intrigued about this for the rest of my life. I don't know if there's going to be a little tiny town in, in heaven that has a setup of what the, t- what the temple and the tabernacle looked like, and can we do some replays of what this was like when the temple, the veil was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. There was an earthquake. The graves opened. And I find myself wondering if when Jesus cried out, it is finished, that at the same time, if that happened at the same time as a high priest in the temple crying out, it is finished, slitting the throne throat of the Passover lamb. Think about that a moment. If so, what was his reaction? He would have been outside. The brazen altar was outside where they did all the sacrifices, where they killed all the animals. And he would have taken some of that blood off that altar and he would have turned around and he would have went into the tabernacle, first of all into the holy, holy place. And then normally we'd go through somehow through the veil into the Holy of Holies. But all of a sudden, it's open. Can you imagine? It's open. What was he supposed to do with that? The blood he was going to take in there for his sins and for the sins of the people, I don't know what he did. History would tell us, some people would speculate that when the high priest, this moment was so sacred, that they would tie a rope around the high priest um, as he went in, before he went in, so that in case something happened and he died, they could pull him out because you didn't dare go in to take him out. Now this veil is rent in twain from top to bottom, and we could talk much about how it was made, hanging from, hanging from 50 tatches, the Bible calls them, which is the number of mercy. Can you imagine the high priest's shock and alarm as he saw what happened? The Bible doesn't tell us. I don't know of any history accounts that tell us what happened. At that point in time, brothers and sisters, because of the blood that Jesus shed on the cross, that, that, that Ark of the Covenant now became an artifact. It now became a souvenir, if you please. Because the blood was shed for our sins Jesus' blood was shed for our sins, and we'll look at that a bit yet in chapter in Hebrews. <clears throat> Jesus' cry, I believe, when he was on the cross was a triumphal cry, even though for the next three nights it seemed like it was all over and sin had prevailed. <clears throat> because of Jesus' sacrifice, the way to the heart of God was opened up again. The tables were turned. In the struggle between Man's sinfulness and God's holiness now has a better solution. Let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. We'll spend a little bit of time yet in Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is an amazing book. And it's one of those books where you start and you hardly know where to start and where to stop. It's continually building upon itself. And it's known as the book of better things. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. Think about this in terms of the fact that for thousands of years, 
the Jewish people would go would celebrate the Passover, and the Passover was the time of the year when annually the atonement was made for their sins. The, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies with some of the blood all, from the altar and, and do this annual sacrifice for their sins. But they did it again and again and again. And this year it might have been this high priest. Next year it was another one because they only lived but so long and they were replaced. And so it was temporary. It was short-lived and it had to be done continually. There's speculation of, of how much blood was shed at the Passover every year when all the lambs were killed. <clears throat> Here in Hebrews chapter 7, looking at the verses between uh, 7, 14, and 8, 6. I won't read those. I'll just point out some verses. Verse 16. Who is made, speaking of Jesus, being after the similitude of Melchizedek, but this Jesus, who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. Actually, I'm going to read this. It's going to make more sense. Hebrews chapter 7, I'm going to start in verse 14. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident, for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest, who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testified, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For there is verily a, a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did by the which we draw nigh unto God. And inasmuch as not without an oath, he was made priest. For these priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Note with me as, as we read various verses here, and we'll look some at chapter 9 yet, but how many times words like eternal or forever or everlasting are used. <clears throat> a priest forever in verse 21. Verse 22. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament, and they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. <clears throat> Wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Verse 26, For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins, and then for the people's. For this he did once, when he offered up for up himself. For the law maketh men high priests, which have infirmity. But the word of the oath, which was since the law, maketh the Son, who is consecrated forevermore. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest, who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary, 
and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, whereof, wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on the earth, he would not be a priest, seeing there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. Not the end of the sentence, but we'll pause there. Actually, I'll read to verse 6. Who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God, when he was about to make the tabernacle, foresee, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern shown to thee in the mount. But now he hath obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is a mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. He is able, in verse 25, to save to the uttermost those who come to God, seeing he ever liveth. He is an eternal priest. He is holy, harmless, undefiled, no filth or corruption of sin in this man. He's separate from sinners and higher than the heavens. And verse 27 emphasizes that he only needed to make his sacrifice once and no sacrifice for himself. This is the sum. Verse, chapter 8, verse 1 says, this is it. This is the final one. This is the true tabernacle. And verse 6 talks about, mentions a more excellent ministry, a better covenant established on better promises. Turn with me. Let's look now at a few verses in chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 7 mentions that the high priest went in once a year and not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. Every year, this high priest would go in, a high priest would go in. <clears throat> verse 8 talks about the way of the ho- to the holiest. The Holy Ghost thus signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. Verse 11 mentions a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. Verse 15 for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, which, which by the means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, that they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. And I think I'll read. Um, I'll start reading in verse 20 and read to the end of the chapter saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. This was deeply ingrained in the children of Israel's minds. Without shedding of blood is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the pattern of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, 
but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, nor yet that he should offer himself often as a high priest has entered into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to get put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. <clears throat> without shedding of blood is no remission of sins. We're told that rabbis even marveled that the blood of a mere sheep could protect people from God's judgment. Today we have that eternal sacrifice. Verses 23 and 24 give us a picture of Jesus taking some of the blood, taking the blood that he shed and entering into heaven, into the holy place, into heaven itself. Verse 24, it says, now to appear in the presence of God for us. And I believe that he sprinkled. I don't know what it looks like there in heaven, but he, I picture that he went to heaven and he presented his, his blood to God the Father and said, here is my blood. This is the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. You know, there's a time there right after his resurrection when Mary saw him and he said, touch me not, for I've not yet ascended into my, to my father. I tend to believe that somewhere there he entered into heaven with blood, his blood, and presented to, to the father for the sins of the world, for your sins, for mine. And all the while, like you can picture that veil in the temple rent in twain. And all of a sudden, the barrier between man and having fellowship with God is taken away. <clears throat> That's what the Bible tells us. The struggle between man's sinfulness and God's holiness now has an eternal solution. It's not just a band-aid. It's an actual cure. It's not just a covering of sins. It actually takes them away. With the sprinkling of Jesus' blood on the heavenly mercy seat, we now have full access to the mercy and grace of God and fellowship with him. And brothers and sisters, isn't that a marvel? That's come out several times in testimonies here this morning, but the wonder of God's holiness, his justice, and his love, and his mercy and grace, and how you and I actually dare have fellowship with him and call him our father. Let's kneel in prayer.